Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The story you're about to hear is not a direct telling of any single myth about the Yumbos. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories about these diminutive spirits for dramatic effect. A small pair of eyes watched the two children from high in the canopy. The girl and younger boy were picking their way through the forest's thick-growing underbrush, pausing occasionally to untangle their clothes from the branches that reached out to ensnare them. The eyes that watched from above belonged to a small, strange creature. It looked like a tiny woman, no more than two feet tall, with brilliant alabaster white skin. She followed the children as they traveled below, jumping deftly from one treetop to another. When the children stopped at a sprawling baobab tree, the creature raised a small, paw-like hand in a silent signal. Suddenly, a whole company of white, humanoid creatures sprang out from behind bright green leaves. The first creature pointed downwards beyond the baobab. Hiding in a copse of trees was a hungry lioness, all but invisible to the children. Her tawny tail twitched with agitation. The creatures in the treetops made small chirps to each other, seeming to communicate a message. All at once, they drew small, thin, silvery bows from their backs. The white creature's intention was clear. If the lioness was hoping for an easy meal, she would be sorely disappointed. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling the stories of their origins, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creations of these beasts. Where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose some of humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. Today, we're discussing the Yumbos, a class of ghostly spirit beings that have been attributed to the Wolof people of Senegal. Pearly white and standing no more than two feet tall, Yumbos have been described as the Wolof counterpart to the European fairy. Unlike fairies, however, Yumbos are the chosen form of the spirits of the dead who haunt the hills of the woodland savanna. 
Death is a shadow, a constant companion haunting the living. When a loved one dies, we like to believe that they never really leave us. It feels like they were just here, having left for but a moment, sure to be back any time. Our understanding of the Yumbos draws predominantly from the writings of the Irish folklorist Thomas Keatley, who was fascinated by the sprite-like creature's similarities to Scottish fairies. In his 1828 work, The Fairy Mythology, he describes having learned about the Yumbos from a woman who lived on Goree Island off the west coast of Africa. It's important to note that Keatley does not claim that this woman was Wolof herself, which means that our understanding of the Yumbos relies heavily on a third-hand account. However, several elements of his description ring true for its similarities to ancestral spirits from other West African cultures. First, Keatley describes Yumbos as tiny, pearly white humanoids. Across West Africa, the color white is often associated with magic and the souls of the dead. Like other African spirits, they don't exist merely as ghosts or wraiths, but live in large communities beneath the hills. Their existence mirrors their former lives. They grow crops, cook, eat, and play music. And sometimes they attach themselves to their former families, watching over their living relatives from beyond the veil. In this way, Yumbos represent a family's heritage. They're links to the past that look after their bloodline's future. And considering the many dangers of the savannah, the living often find themselves in need of protection. It had been three days since her father had left, and Binta was growing worried. On Thursday, her father, or Bai, as she endearingly referred to him, had bounded into the house, a big smile on his face. He told Binta that she needed to be a good girl and watch her brother Abdu for a day while he was gone. A foreign man had come to the village from far away and hired him as a guide to take him to Nyokolo Koba, the nature preserve. Bai said, Binta, Abdu, you have to be brave. I will only be gone one night, I promise you. I'll return tomorrow, and in two days, on Abdu's birthday, we will visit your mother and celebrate. Now it was Sunday, Abdu's sixth birthday, and there was no sign of her father. Binta felt resentful. She hadn't wanted to look after Abdu in the first place, and now it seemed like she was stuck with him. Not only that, Binta was growing worried. Bai had never left them alone for so long. What if something had happened to him in Nyokolokoba? There were predators in the preserve. What if one had hurt her father? Abdu had begun to wonder too. That morning, he asked Binta if Bai could have gotten lost or had left them for good. Binta shushed him, but she couldn't deny that the same thoughts had crossed her mind. By mid-afternoon, Binta had decided. Since Bai had not come home, they would have to go out and find him. Binta wrapped the remaining cold lamb, bananas, and hard goat's cheese in a clean cloth and stuffed it into her school rucksack. She threw in her father's big flashlight and a hollow gourd filled with water. 
Finally, she dug her father's small hunting knife from its hiding place under his pillow and looped it through her belt the way she'd seen him do it so many times before. She called to her brother, Abdu, get your clothes on. We have to go find Bai. The stoic six-year-old nodded resolutely. He was used to Binta taking the lead, whether it was in make-believe adventures or real ones. Abdu was her first mate, her second in command, used to adapting to the ever-changing rules of play that Binta made up as she went along. To him, this was just another game, like hide-and-go-seek. Their father must have found a very good hiding place. Thirty minutes later, Abdu was ready to go. Binta was exasperated, he could tell. She always said he took too long, no matter what he was doing. He hadn't been sure what to wear, so he decided to wear everything. Father's long green mababa, or kaftan, trailed along behind his short legs, and he had donned a red plastic firefighter's helmet that Binta had once brought him home from school. He clutched one of their father's walking sticks in his hand, a branch taken from a flat-topped acacia and sanded smooth with years of use. The siblings left the house quietly, careful to blow out the kerosene lantern that burned in the front window. Binta checked to make sure the sheep in the small pen beside the house had plenty of feed and water. Abdu followed behind Binta, his father's mababa trailing in the tall grass as they walked to the rear of the property. The children stopped before a simple stone marker at the far corner of the property. The stone was unadorned, save for a simple inscription carved in thin, neat letters. Aminata, beloved wife and mother. Abdu darted forward, a small bundle of wildflowers still trailing roots clutched in his hand. He placed them in front of the gravestone. He spoke to the stone. Hello, Yai. It's Abdu and Binta again. We came to visit you like we do every year on my birthday. I'm six years old today. We're going away to find father in the preserve. Abdu was still young, so he didn't fully understand why they visited their mother's grave only on his birthday and not on Binta's or their father's. But he never minded saying hello to his mother and imagining what her voice might sound like saying hello back. Binta always grew sad on this day, even though they'd usually have a celebration for Abdu. Abdu blamed the gravestone. Binta avoided it the rest of the year and rarely made mention of their mother. But today, Abdu's birthday, Binta spoke to the stone too. She said, Yai, father says that you watch over us. I know that you'll look after us in the park. We'll be back home soon, we promise. Binta produced the goat's cheese from her rucksack and placed a small piece next to Abdu's wildflowers. Satisfied they had pleased their mother, both children rose to their feet, turned north, and disappeared into the forest. Binta and Abdu picked their way through the underbrush, jumping over roots and balancing on downed tree trunks. Though she was more focused on trying to hurry Abdu along, Binta couldn't shake the feeling that she was being watched. For just a moment, 
Binta thought she saw a flash of something brilliantly white out of the corner of her eye. But when she looked back to pinpoint it, all she could see were the greens and yellows and browns of the forest. Shrugging, she turned her attention back to the path ahead. Above her, a small white head poked out from behind a particularly thick tree bough. The creature's watery eyes watched as the two little figures below trod on through the forest, seemingly unaware of the dangers that lay in wait for them. Abdu was not in a good mood. They'd been walking for ages, and now that the red sun had set below the horizon, it was growing cold. They'd finished the bananas and cheese, and he would starve before he ate the cold lamb. He was ready for this adventure to be over. He wanted to go back home. With any luck, Bai would be there already, waiting for them with hot poulet yasa and tea. But when he expressed this to Binta, she became annoyed with him. Didn't he realize their father was not home? They needed to press on if they wished to find him in the preserve. They'd been limping along when Abdu spotted the baobab tree. It was a giant, taller than any of the trees that grew closer to the village. It was wider than their whole house, with its thick, gnarled roots spreading out another dozen yards from its trunk. High in the tree's branches, heavy, dried baobab fruit hung tantalizingly. Abdu ran for the tree, aiming for a low bough that bent almost to the forest floor. He could already taste the tart baobab at the back of his throat. At home, he liked to mix the powdered fruit into water or tea and sip them on a hot day. Now, with his tummy rumbling, a bite of the gritty, dried heart of a wild fruit sounded like heaven. He jumped, grabbing onto the large fruit. His weight was enough to break it free from its stem, and he tumbled to the forest floor. The baobab held aloft in his hand. He ignored Binta as she called his name. He could hear the annoyance in her voice. Well, she could wait until he'd figured out a way to break open the rock-hard fruit. Abdu hadn't seen the eyes hiding in the scrub brush yet. Through gritted teeth, Binta called softly to Abdu again, willing him to listen for once in his short life. But the boy ignored her, choosing instead to hammer the dried fruit with a rock, trying to break it open. The hairs stood up on the back of Binta's neck. Behind her brother, the green eyes had moved closer. They were stalking him, getting ready to take their prey unawares. Binta shouted, Abdu! She ran forward, grabbing the little boy's arm. As she did, a roar came from the scrub behind him. Just as Binta hoisted Abdu onto her back, an angry lioness, her hackles raised, bounded into the clearing beneath the tree. Abdu buried his face in his sister's back. Binta faced the lioness's black-lipped maw. But instead of being scared, she felt angry with herself. It was her fault they were in the woods. She was supposed to protect Abdu, but instead had led him into the very heart of danger. 
She had broken her promise to Bai to keep her brother safe, and now they would both be eaten, and it would be all her fault. She tried to make herself seem big, baring her teeth at the creature, trying lamely to match its ferocity. Only Abdu saw a small streak of white shoot through the air toward the lioness. The white dart found a home in her flank, but instead of wounding her, something strange happened. Immediately, the lioness closed her mouth. Her hackles fell, and a dreamy, dozy look came into her green eyes. There was no sign of her previous aggression. Acknowledging the two children, who on any other day would prove a tempting target, she lazily shifted her weight to her front paws and slunk back into the brush. Still grimacing at the empty spot where the lioness had stood, Binta noticed that the night was somehow brighter than it had been just a few moments before. She turned around, searching for the source. Behind her, on top of a ridge, there was a line of small, glowing lights. One of them moved toward the lip of the cliff. Binta saw that it wasn't simply a light, but a small, glowing being with arms and legs. The being held a tiny bow stretched taut in its hands, an arrow knocked and ready to fire. In fact, all of the glowing creatures clutched tiny bows and spears. They held them aloft, training their darts on a single point. Binta. Coming up, the Yumbos decide whether Abdu and Binta are friends or foes. Now back to the story. For many, death is seen not as a bookend to life, but merely the ending of one chapter. In the next, the deceased communicate freely and frequently with those they've left behind, offering warnings, advice, and even appearing as phantasms to ensure their will is carried out. This concept of communication between the dead and the living crosses cultures and continents. In China, ancestor worship is a fundamental tenet of Taoism and Confucianism. Ancestors must be honored with specific rituals, and to forget them is to risk their ire. The Yumbos of Senegal act similarly to Chinese ancestors, for it's said that within the small bodies of these strange creatures, the souls of the departed reside. Yumbos are known for attaching themselves to their living families, looking after their descendants for generations. For the families, this is a direct way for them to communicate with and feel connected to their ancestors. And Wolof ancestors responded to their descendants' requests personally. They came back to Earth as Yumbos, protector spirits who actively saved their relatives from danger. Binta and Abdu stood on the forest floor, staring up at the line of glowing white figures. The sprites still trained their weapons on the children, as if trying to decide whether or not they were a threat. Finally, the sprites lowered their bows as one. Binta breathed a sigh of relief. Whatever these things were, they meant no harm. The brush at the bottom of the ridge rustled, 
and one of the white creatures emerged, edging cautiously toward Binta and Abdu. Binta, Abdu yelled, hiding behind his sister. What is it? Binta held out her hand to the creature, hyper-aware of its every movement. Adrenaline was still coursing through her veins from the lioness attack, and she flinched each time the sprite moved too quickly. Suddenly, it felt as if some warm, protective energy was flowing from the being. She relaxed. Up close, the creature was even stranger than she had imagined. Its face looked almost human, with watery blue eyes and a flattened, almost non-existent nose. A circle of braided leaves sat atop its stark white afro. Its arms ended in round, club-like hands, with blunt, long claws like an aardvark's. Binta realized with a start that she knew what this creature was. She turned to her brother. Abdu, don't be afraid. Do you remember how Bai told us about the Yumbos? They're spirits who come back from the afterlife to protect the family members they left behind. I think this is one of them. At the word Yumbo, the being perked up. It chirped excitedly and then placed its small, paw-like hand in Binta's. Before she could register what was happening, she and Abdu were being whisked away through the underbrush faster than humanly possible. As the Yumbo ran, dodging tree branches and climbing hillocks with ease, Binta felt her feet lift off the ground. Suddenly before them was a tall, narrow crack in the stone wall of the ridge, just wide enough for a small child to fit through. The Yumbo made a beeline for it, pulling the children behind him like a banner. They were underground now, in a complex network of tunnels and caverns that the Yumbo navigated with expert ease. Binta and Abdu caught the tiniest glimpses of great wonders. Caves filled with glittering diamonds, a winding underground river glowing electric green, mushrooms as large as baobabs growing in groves. They came to an abrupt halt at a large door carved out of the living rock of the mountain. The Yumbo chirped again, and the door rumbled as it swung inward. Behind the door, a raucous party was in full swing. Hundreds of small, white spirits crowded around a table laden with rice, chicken, lamb, and vegetables. Dried gourds filled with curdled sheep's milk and hibiscus bee sap dotted the long table's surface. Along the far wall, a band was playing and the yumbos were dancing merrily. The Yumbos froze in surprise when they caught sight of the brown-skinned human boy and girl at the far end of the hall. The band stopped playing, and revelers dropped cutlery and glasses from their paw-like hands. Binta and Abdu's guide said something to the others in the Yumbos' chirping language. At once, the mood in the room became relaxed once more. Binta felt a pair of strong hands tugging at the edge of her cloak. When she turned to see why, she was surprised. Two large, disembodied black hands, a right and a left, had her overcoat bunched between their fingers. But the owner of the hands was nowhere to be seen. 
a third hand appeared and gestured for Binta to relinquish her muddy cloak. She complied, dumbfounded as she uncinched the leather thong tying it together at her throat. She looked over to Abdu. An identical set of hands was relieving him of his firefighter's helmet and the ragged Mababa. More hands appeared, gesturing for Binta and Abdu to take two empty seats at the end of the table. They barely had to lift their own fingers, for as soon as they sat down, heaping plates full of couscous and chicken rushed toward them. The invisible servants tied large cotton napkins around the children's necks and poured them both healthy glasses full of sweet bee sap. Binta had heard her father, Bai, tell stories of the Yumbo's great feasts, but it was quite another thing to witness it firsthand. She thought back to the village feasts where the old ladies would stuff her full of never-ending food, but that seemed like a pittance compared to the bounty under the hills. Abdu was wolfing down any dish that came near, his little belly growing round and poking out from his slim frame. He stood barely taller than the Yumbos, but if he kept eating, he would soon be twice as wide. Looking around the table, Binta took in the fantastic appearance of the Yumbos. Though none wore clothes, no two beings looked alike. Many tied their hair in intricate braids and knots, though just as many let their natural curls puff around their heads like pure white halos. They decorated themselves with feathers and branches, some wearing animal pelts like long cloaks, others wearing long necklaces of shells strung together on plant fibers. She noticed that one spirit in particular had broken away from the feast and was hovering just a few feet from Abdu. Still protective of her brother, Binta stood, trying to maneuver herself in between him and the curious Yumbo. Then Binta noticed the simple necklace the Yumbo wore around its neck. Tied to a long string was a single, large, coal-black cowrie shell. Binta froze. She could hear the sound of waves roaring in her ears as the blood rushed to her head. She remembered the last time she had seen that black cowrie shell necklace, six years before. The Imam had placed it on top of her mother's breast, over the simple white sheet that shrouded her body. Binta had not been able to keep her eyes from it all through the prayers in the little mosque, even when her wrinkled new baby brother Abdu began to cry in her father's arms. She had thought the shell had gone into the ground with her mother, but the Yumbo before her was wearing the same unmistakable necklace. Binta held out her hands to the spirit as she asked the question, Yai, Mama, is that you? Next, the Yumbos help Binta and Abdu find their way home. Now back to the story. So far, Abdu's birthday had been very strange indeed. Binta and her little brother had gone into the jungle in search of their father. They'd been rescued from a lion by the Yumbo people, and then the little white sprites had invited them to a feast in their home beneath the mountains. 
but none of that compared to this. Beads of sweat sprang to Binta's forehead as she stared at the Yumbo before her. The small white figure was wearing her mother's necklace. It didn't seem possible. Then the Yumbo reached out and touched Binta's hand. It was Yai. Tears sprang to the little girl's eyes as she grasped her mother's hands. The Yumbo reached up and placed her small, clawed hands on either side of Binta's face. From inside her own head, Binta heard a whispering, musical voice speak. Her mother's voice echoed through her mind. My Binta, how you have grown and how brave you are. I can't tell you how happy I am to see you. Binta wanted to scream, to cry out in joy, to throw her hands around her mother. But before she could move, her mother's voice continued. You must go back home. Your father is waiting for you there. I am sorry, my love, but I cannot follow. I must stay here under the ground. Binta felt as if she had the wind knocked out of her. She couldn't leave Yai, not after losing her for so long. She felt like screaming. In a defiant voice, Binta said, Then we will stay here. Send a messenger to the village, then father will come too. We will be together again. You, me, Bai, and Abdu. Before the words even left her mouth, Binta could tell that her proposal wouldn't work. Yai shook her head sadly, her watery eyes streaming tears to match Binta's. Her mother's voice came again. You belong in the world of the living. While you can visit, you must not remain here long. Already your time here grows short. The guide who brought you here will bring you to the village. Go back home to your father. He misses you. Binta knew her mother was right. Angry, she turned sharply from the Yumbo, feeling a strange tingling sensation as she broke contact with Yai. The Yumbo that had brought them to the banquet was waiting at the table by Abdu, and already the disembodied hands were wrapping her little brother in their father's freshly laundered Mababa. Binta said, Abdu, we must go home. We can't stay here any longer. Abdu nodded quietly and got to his feet. The invisible servants had even given him a clean, new pair of sandals. Binta turned once more to Yai and saw that the spirit was looking past her, her blue eyes fixed on Abdu as he placed the firefighter's helmet on his head. Only then did it click into place for Binta. Her mother had died in childbirth. Her brother had never met his mother. He hadn't even been old enough to know her before she passed away. Binta said, Yai, do you want to meet your son? The Yumbo nodded, and Binta took her by the hand and led her to where Abdu stood. She said, Abdu, this is Yai, our mother. Abdu turned to face Yai, his helmet sloping forward on his head. The two were almost the same height, and they held each other's gaze for a long moment. He held out his arms wordlessly, Bai's long sleeves covering his pudgy hands. 
He wrapped Yai in a hug, squeezing her with as much strength as his six-year-old body could muster. Yai pulled the black cowrie shell necklace from around her own neck and pressed it into Abdu's hand. Binta heard Yai's voice again and saw her brother's eyes light up. She knew that he was hearing his mother's voice for the first time. Yai said, Abdu, my sweet, strong boy, I have always loved you. Please take this necklace and think of me whenever you're sad or lonely. I couldn't be there for you in life, but now I'll always be with you. When Abdu withdrew from Yai's embrace, the ever-stoic little boy had tears resting on his lashes. He wiped them away with the sleeve of the Mababa, blowing his nose with it for good measure. Yai said to her children, Now go, the both of you. Once more, the Yumbo guide took hold of Binta and Abdu, and they were flying through the serpentine network of caves and tunnels deep beneath the earth. Before long, they arrived on the surface, passing through the small crack at the entrance to the Yumbo city. On they flew, covering distance in minutes that had taken Abdu and Binta hours just the day before. The Yumbo wound its way through the trees and the scrub brush, deftly avoiding termite mounds and mongoose burrows. Just before midday, the Yumbo came to a stop in a clearing. Though it took Binta a moment to orient herself, she recognized the nearby flat-topped acacia tree as the one that marked the edge of their farm. They were home. The Yumbo turned to the children. It was almost translucent in the sunlight, and Binta thought she could make out the details of the tree branches behind it. The Yumbo bowed deeply. Then, in a flash of white, it was gone. They were alone. When Binta and Abdu emerged from the forest, it was like nothing had changed. The house still looked like it always had, with its slanted roof and crooked front door. As they approached, the door swung open. Father stood in the doorway, looking half-crazed. He ran across the property and scooped Binta and Abdu into his strong arms, shouting, my children, where did you go? I've half a mind to lock you up and throw away the key. Binta could see from her father's beaming smile that he was only joking. He was truly happy to see them. Binta said, Bai, we were looking for you after you didn't come home. The Yumbos found us and took us to their feast under the hills. What happened to you? Father said, So the Yumbos took you? All right, never mind where you really were. I'm just happy you're home. He carried Binta and Abdu into the house and set them down by the kitchen table. It was buckling under the weight of mountains of food. There were bulging sacks of rice and couscous, sides of smoked beef, and baskets of tomatoes and tamarind fruit. Bai explained that something wonderful had happened. While he was out in the preserve, a mad lioness attacked the group. They had to hide up a tree for two days and a night before she lost interest and let them go. When they were running from the lioness, poor Mr. Muangi tripped and hurt his ankle. 
Bai carried him up the tree and kept him from falling out all that time. After the lioness left and they were able to get to a road, they flagged down a ride back to the village. Mr. Moangi was so grateful to Bai that he proclaimed him his brother. He gave Bai more money than he made in a year and promised to come visit soon. They had been blessed. Bai hugged the children tightly once again, overjoyed. Binta couldn't stop smiling, and even stone-faced Abdu was sporting the smallest grin. Then their father's gaze fell on the black cowrie shell Abdu was wearing around his neck. Bai said, Abdu, where did you get that? Abdu told him all about the Yumbo city under the hills and how he had met his mother. Bai listened, his brow creasing with such concentration that Binta wondered what he might be thinking. When Abdu finished his story, Bai stared at him for a long time. When he finally spoke, it was in a distant voice, as if remembering a dream. Children, I saw something very strange last night. When the lioness was pacing under our tree, a cluster of white darts hit her in the side. Instantly, it was as if she was as docile as a sheep. She left the tree and slunk off deeper into the forest. But the strangest thing of all was when I looked back, I thought I saw a small glowing man standing in the distance with a bow in its arms. When I blinked, the man disappeared. Bai reached out to touch Abdu's necklace, his eyes twinkling. He did not know if his children were telling the truth, but if they were, he hoped that they had told their mother that he had never forgotten her. Losing a loved one is one of the most profound experiences a person can have. The need to connect to those we've lost is something instinctual, and for many, the dead have an influence long after they have shuffled off this mortal coil. In the case of the Yumbos of Senegal, stories of protective sprites living in the forest allow people to reminisce and remember their deceased family and friends. These stories are a way of addressing a central fear of humanity, the terror of the final death, the fear of being forgotten. For the Wolof people, it's comforting to know that the spirits of their ancestors live on beneath the hills of Senegal, watching over their descendants with love and affection. They can also rest assured in the fact that when their time has come to die, they too will live on among the Yumbos. More importantly, they will survive in the hearts and memories of the ones they've left behind. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Yumbos, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Fairy Mythology by Thomas Keatley extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. 
Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Molly Quinlan, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson.